This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live at nhtalkradio.com. Joined by Chris Ryan today and brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour. Call 224-9111. Celebrate life at the Birches. Well, Chris, it's... A beautiful day in downtown Concord. Market days are in full swing for much of this weekend. The crowds are out. The tents are up. It's very colorful, and pedestrians can walk on the main street. Now, I have just returned from a little bit of time away from Bella Concorde. I went to Italy, where I got to practice my pigeon Italian in my bad Italian accent. But my Italian accent was actually good enough so that when I went into the fresh pasta shop and ordered fresh pasta from the pasta lady, figuring out what to say and what words I needed to say to say, I want eight of those meatballs. Otte polpette, per favore. When anyway, when I, when I talked to her, she started talking to me in Italian. And it was crazy. I had to say, mi dispiace, non parlare italiano. What'd you call her? No, oh, mi dispiace means I'm so disappointed, oh. I'm distressed. Non parlare italiano, solamente un poco mi parlare inglese. A pigeon Italian, very bad. Anyway, she was very nice. She stopped talking to me, but we did get our fresh pasta. Because believe it or not, in Italy, they have Italian food. And let me tell you, Italian food in Italy is actually better than Italian food in most of the United States. And really, since all I care about is food, it was a great trip. And while I was away, I didn't look at the news. I didn't follow the news. I didn't read about the news. I didn't hear about the news. I didn't watch television. And then on my return, I come back and I find out that all you know what has broken loose. Not surprisingly, what is it today? Well, it turns out that Americans are now acting like, I don't know what, separating little children, bambino, from their families and keeping the bambino in cages like they were animals with a zero tolerance policy of immigration on the border. And of course, Trumpalini, Benito Trumpalini, the president of the United States, says, he says, it's not a problem. It's a democratic problem. We're, it's not our problem. I'm a Benito Mussolini. I don't do nothing. It's all the Democrats. They do this to the kids. What can I do? My hands are tied. Of course, we then get a cries of outrage 
not just from Democrats, but from evangelicals, from former first ladies, from Melania Trump, and Benito Trumpanini now makes a pronouncement. I'm going to change my mind. I'm a, believe it or not, Benito Mussolini, Trumpanini gets to change his mind. And he changed his mind again. This time he signed an executive order. And it says, keep families together. But that's not the whole story. Because you'd think, oh, isn't that... That's sweet. Trumpanini wants to keep the kids with their parents. He's finally softened his heart. But no, he hasn't softened his heart because what he's now doing is he's decided to arrest people for the minor infractions that used to simply say send them back to their country. Now they're all going to be arrested and all going to be put in cages together. So isn't that really kind and benevolent? As you can see. I am the benevolent dictator, Trumpalini. I now keep the families together behind the cages for an indeterminate time of detention. What kind of country have we become, people? What kind of nation do we, are we seen as around the world? Now, Italy isn't a whole lot better. They just arrested, uh, I mean, elected a populist right-wing govern, uh, government. They've got a huge immigration problem because they're in the Mediterranean. And immigrants have and refugees have streamed in from the Middle East and from Africa, burdening their society and promoting this right-wing uh, populist government. But here in the United States, we actually need, we, we're our country of refugees. Mm -hmm. We're all refugees. We were all immigrants at one point or another. I think about my grandfather who came over in 1913. I went to Ellis Island. I saw the manifest from the ship. I saw his sign-in papers. We didn't keep people in cages. That's not America. That is not America. Well, a couple things. Um, you know, first off, we, you know, provide due process to some extent for these individuals um we do not send them back we uh we do keep them as opposed to just saying saying with a shotgun go back in the other direction so let me just say on due process the immigration courts are so backed up so understaffed Correct. so behind that at some point the delays in due process become unreasonable detention and right. that's what we've it's got a reasonable detention for individuals who are trying to access the country illegally um, so, you know, there's a lot of things here. First off, uh, is a incredible failure on the part of, uh, political figures for decades to address the immigration issue in a comprehensive fashion and to truly roll up their sleeves and do what's right and, uh, just on this issue. And as a result of that, we have seen, whether it's, you know, you referenced Italy, you've, re uh, there's other countries, uh, across Europe where um, open border policies have created angst and anxiety about amongst their nations, and they have swung the pendulum in the other direction, just like we have seen here in the United States. Because of the lack of ability to address this issue in a way that um, alleviates the, the pressures and the problems on our society, um, we have seen the pendulum swing back and forth on this particular issue. Those with the loudest voices in... Um, on the right wing of the cons of the conservative and Republican uh, ideology, and President Trump, um, you know, and President Trump really stoked the emotions on this issue build in order to have success. Build the wall. Mexico will pay for it. We're, we're going to build a very strongly wall. A very strongly wall. Mexico is going to pay. But the the root of this issue is threefold. 
One is that our legal immigration process, despite the fact that we have uh, a million individuals who um, become U.S. citizens on a uh, year-in, year-out basis, the, the legal immigration process is still too slow and it's broken. Uh, and is broken. The other aspect is that there's the estimated at least 7 million individuals who are here in this country illegally. And therefore, uh, they do not pay taxes, they drain resources, they um, are part of a, a sub-economy that, that exists. And, and that's, that's not true. How is uh, that not true? It's, it's not true. It's not true that they don't pay taxes. In fact, many of the people, Sales tax. Many okay. of the people who are here uh, illegally not only uh, do pay taxes and pay into the system, all the statistics show that they are not a net loss or drag on our revenue system. They are a plus. And many of them uh, have, frankly, obtained Social Security numbers and other uh, forms of identification, and although they are here illegally. And I'm not excusing their illegal entry. I'm just giving you – I'm just uh, debating the fact uh, they pay into the they pay, system. They pay sales tax. Correct. Um, that, is, that is true. Um, they do not pay income. They do not pay the same amount of taxes in a proportional fashion that we do. Um, uh, that's Most of them are earning money below below the bo- below the poverty line right. anyway, and, do, and doing the jobs that that apparently Americans don't want to do. Some are doing that. Some are also, um, you know, and it's, this has nothing to do with race or ethnicity or anything else. It's economic opportunity, and the same thing would happen if it were Irish immigrants or other types of immigrants. They are. Um, you know, dealing in drugs and other aspects of things in order to achieve greater amounts of economic prosperity that they can't through traditional economic methods. Uh, they, uh, there, there, is, there are no indications that um, uh, I- the illegal immigrant community deals in drugs to any greater extent than any other segment of the American community. It's just not true. No, it is true. I mean, if you look at the the individuals, if you talk to law enforcement, okay, well, let's not argue, let's not argue okay. about it. Get to your third point. Third point. Um, there is reasons that individuals are leaving the countries that they are in Central America, and it is incumbent, in my view, on uh, our government and um, nonprofits to figure out um, whether it's Amnesty International or others, figuring out a way for um, there to be alleviated pressure in these nations so that individuals are not necessarily wanting to leave the nations that they're in because of the economic difficulties, the, um, the gang warfare, etc., and also to work with other countries so that migrants, um, you know, perhaps go somewhere else instead of the United States. Unfortunately, the history of the United States and its involvement in Central and South America has been poor. Has has not been one of supporting solutions to those problems, but rather it's been one of fomenting those problems by supporting um, right-wing dictatorial governments. Correct. uh, And 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 frankly, uh, participating in some way in causing many of these. So that's why the nonprofit issue comes into it, And, and we've seen across the world that when we try to find diplomatic solutions to um, these scenarios, we end up funding dictatorial right-wing governments, and instead of, you know, a million dollars going to individuals who are not eating, the million dollars goes to building a swimming pool at the mansion of the democratically, quote-unquote, elected dictator. So let's agree on this, at the very least, although you and I disagree on what is fact and what is myth. 
uh, on some issues. The immigration system in the country is broken. Legal immigration. And that is the biggest issue. The legal immigration system is broken. It is slow. It is cumbersome. It is simply broken. Uh, A fix needs to be found, and Congress is totally dysfunctional. When I was in Congress, frankly, um, we tried various fixes to the immigration system, some of them piece by piece, uh, which were opposed, believe it or not, by the Hispanic Caucus, which held out for a comprehensive solution, which and a piece by piece system uh, solution might have solved at least some of the issues that we now face, such as uh, H3B visas for uh, seasonal workers and, mm-hmm. and, and skilled workers. It The politics of this uh, have been unfortunately complicated. They're unhappy. But at the bottom line, the idea that the President of the United States, who I only half ingest, uh, compare to a fascist Italian dictator by calling him Benito Trumpalini. The idea that he played politics and is playing politics with families and children who are now separated from their parents. Their parents can't find their kids. The kids can't find their parents. There are reports coming out of desperate children who don't speak English crying out day and night for their parents. Those scenes of those kids in cages, which still exist because they can't be found with kids being transported all over the country, and the Department of Homeland Security chief and Sessions and Trump trying to justify this on by using the Bible to justify ripping kids apart from their parents. It's simply obscene. It's un-American. It's unchristian. It's wrong. It has to stop. It has to be fixed. And the people who are responsible for this need to be held to account. Let's be really clear about what um, Scripture and um, religion uh, particularly Christianity, uh, indicates in regards to um, individuals. First and foremost, we are human beings, and um, we are to treat uh, one another with dignity and respect. And um, there's certainly the aspect of, uh, of nationalism, which occurs after that, and uh, belonging to a nation. But before any of that, there is the, um, the ability to treat one another with respect and dignity as uh, as human beings. And I think that we all need to take a step back and recognize that certainly um, immigration has changed since my um, you know, great-grandparents came from, from, Ire- uh, from Ireland to Ellis Island and since your ancestors came, um, and the environment is, is different. Um, but the fact of the matter is that we our children of immigrants, grandchildren of immigrants, great-grandchildren of immigrants. And um, we need to be cognizant of that. And we need to not pull up the ladder uh, and stomp on other individuals who are trying to achieve the American dream. Whether or not they are doing it the right way, um, that is obviously uh, a bone of contention uh, because they are not uh, in many circumstances. But you still have to recognize that that's a human being and they deserve to be uh, treated with uh, dignity and respect, as we would have hoped that our ancestors are. And we have reaped the benefits of um, their hard work, and we should pay homage to those who are trying to do the, the same thing. 
This is Paul Hodes. It's off the record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the internet. And I've just come back from Assisi, walking in the footsteps of St. Francis. And we could all use a little bit of what he knew uh, in the world today. Humility, uh, charity, um, and... uh, understanding that we are all one and treating people that way. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes, brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour. Celebrate life at the Birches. Call 224-9111. Don't go away. We'll be back with a fascinating conversation with Mark Connolly in just a few. Welcome back to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the internet and archived at nhtalkradio.com, where you can binge listen to your heart's content. We're brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living facility, designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour, celebrate life at the Birches, call 224-9111. Well, on this Lovely weekend here in Concord, New Hampshire. Uh, Market days in swing, the tents up, the people on the streets. It's a lively scene, and I'm joined by a lively guest, Mark Connolly, who has served the state of New Hampshire uh, as Securities Commissioner and Deputy Secretary of State, a fascinating position, ran for governor in 2016. Um, and is uh, a person who knows a lot about finances and our economy, is joining me. Mark, welcome to Off the Record. Glad to be here, Paul. So what have you been doing since you ran for governor? Uh, having a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I've been working on my business. Yep. I have an uh, investment advisory practice. I also do uh, expert witness testimony for securities fraud uh, nationally. And uh, so I've been working my business and doing some traveling and uh, staying involved politically, watching the whole environment. And uh, it's, uh, shall we say, interesting times. It is. <laughs> there, there is a great curse offered <laughs> to people. Um, I forget who, who, who made it, but it was, may you live in interesting times. Yes. And, I, and we certainly are. I mean, uh, you know, I, in, I, I, I get to rant on this show. In the first segment, uh, Chris Ryan and I ranted about uh, Benito Trompolini because I've just come back from uh, a trip and I, I have Italian, Italian on, on the brain. And, and frankly, when, when the president uh, curls his lower lip and sticks out his arms, I mean, he looks just like uh, Trompolini, except uh, without the without the brown uniform. Um, putting all that aside, New Hampshire has its own uh, roiled atmosphere uh, at the moment. Uh, the governor just vetoed two seemingly sensible uh, energy energy bills. One which would have expanded net metering to help facilitate. Uh, solar power, um, and now it looks like a number of cities and towns which had planned uh, projects for alternative energy will uh, will have to put those on hold. He um, vetoed a bill that would have helped the biomass industry, wood pellets, wood, timber, and logging. Um, seemingly, I, I, I still can't figure out why. Maybe it has something to do with his contributors who happen to be the big utilities. Do you have any thoughts about why a governor in New Hampshire wouldn't take a reasonable and, dare I say, 
uh, in a non-political sense, progressive approach to energy. Uh, that would seem to be what we need and, and would want for New Hampshire. Well, let me, let me, let me give a, a couple thoughts. First of all, uh, about a decade ago, we passed what's called the Renewable Portfolio Standard, which was to get us more on renewable energy. And our goal is to be 25% of renewables by 2025. Uh, that is definitely achievable. In fact, I think we're behind the curve. I, when I ran for governor, I said we should be 50% by 2035. And doing more in terms of renewables is important. I will say to you, uh, from my perspective, the governor doesn't have an energy plan. Uh, he was pushing... Uh, Northern Pass, even before it got, uh, it got any kind of deliberation by the Site Evaluation Commission, uh, I can tell you that the state doesn't even have a strate strategic plan. I mean, in other words, whether it's health care, education, or energy, we do not know where we want to be in the next 10 years. So we're reactive. And to your point, one of the things that's concerned me, and I've, 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 I've talked about this on many occasions, is we, there's too much money involved in politics. And if you look at the governor's inauguration committee, uh, he raised almost $450,000, which then was, one, I think, the highest amount ever, ever raised. And a lot of it, if not most, was from corporations. And that was just for the inauguration. That was just for the inauguration. But under, under current law, that money can be used in terms of, of campaigning. And I believe the governor's used that to travel to different groups nationally. And that money, in my opinion, can be used in his current election. And I don't think, you know, the inauguration committees shouldn't be used. And that's supposed to be a celebration of our state and, and the political system and whoever w wins. In this case, I think it's symptomatic of a, a, a far-reaching problem, which is the amount of money in politics, and it continues. And I would say that this, the parallel is very, very much there with the Trump administration, who also had his own inauguration commission, who is taking it from corporate interests, and continues to do so. And a lot of the issues we're talking about today, and to, to your point, renewable energy, where there's some pushback by utilities and corporations not to go as aggressively as we need to go, get off the fossil economy. Well, you know, I, I have to confess that until recently, I uh, focused most of my attention around money and politics um, at the federal level. Um, you know, I served as a U.S. congressman, and I've joined and have been working with a group called Issue One, uh, which uh, is comprised, among other things, of many, many former members of um, uh, the, the House of Representatives, the Senate, uh, other government officials uh, working on reforming uh, campaign finances at the federal level. Um, some, some have, uh, have concerns about whether or not the effort is, is um, strong enough um, but we're dealing at the federal level with the Citizens United decision, which basically opened the floodgates for unlimited amounts of money into politics. And until recently, and uh, un I, until I had a very interesting conversation with my friend John Rao, who has uh, taken up uh, the chairmanship of the effort to do something about uh, money in politics um, at the state level, um, I hadn't really focused on those issues in the New Hampshire state elections. Because, folks, let's, let's face it, you'd think that in a system where there are 400 um, representatives who earn $100 a year, um, there are uh, state senators who earn the same. The governor's salary in New Hampshire is with, 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 uh, without uh, 
trying to cast dispersions about it, uh, frankly, compared to most executive salaries in the country and most uh, salaries of chief executives in various states, is 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 low. I mean, we're we're a, we're a, we're a place where. Uh, oh, at least superficially, the public would say, well, we, we don't have money in politics. You know, if you get elected to the House of Representatives here in New Hampshire, you're making $100 a year in your mileage. Folks, and that, by the way, came into uh, that came to be because in the New Hampshire Constitution, uh, the uh, drafters of the Constitution for New Hampshire wanted to make sure that legislators were fairly compensated. So they put in a provision that uh, basically said they should get a half a year's uh, farming salary because everybody was farmers. And they figured that a half a year's farming salary back uh, in the 1700s was around $100. And in true New Hampshire fashion, that's where it stayed ever since. And Nobody seems to be complaining about it. But when we now are running campaigns in New Hampshire, it's all out full tilt fundraising for many of the positions. If you take a look at what's happening in the executive council races for jobs that pay nothing, people are raising hundreds of thousands of dollars because it affects politics and the various interests at play expect to be paid back. And I, the only thing I can think about is that's what's going on with with this governor on at, at, at that with the instance of, of the energy bills. Well, can I? Sure, please do. Um, I also, actually was a state representative at, what, at one younger age. And I will tell you that one of the good things about the legislature is the size and its, and its democratic intent. The bad part is there's not much resource and lobbyists play a role that most people don't realize. And give me some examples. Now it costs, I mean, state rep races can cost thousands of dollars. State Senate races can cost 200 plus thousand dollars. And you mentioned the executive council. Uh, running for governor now uh, is, is, is a million dollar effort in many cases. And a lot of this money comes from lobbyists. They can actually have many clients who have issues before the legislature, they can bundle money from those clients and not reveal where that money's coming from. Or we have examples where money's coming from out of state. In fact, most people are surprised to learn, as an example, in the last U.S. Senate race uh, between Gene Shaheen and, and Scott Brown, uh, and the same thing with Maggie Hassan and, and Kelly Ayotte, over $100, 000, $100 million was spent in both races, and probably 80% of that money came from out of state. And a lot of that money is not disclosed. We don't really know who's spending that money because existing law either doesn't require it or people don't report and then nothing's really done about it from an enforcement viewpoint. So the amount of money that's coming in and controlling the legislative debate and energy policies where you went with that is obscene. And we started with Citizens United and those kind of efforts. Here on the state level, I think we have to have better disclosure requirements. Uh, right now, there are ways to game the system where you could give $7,000 a person before you file for office, and you can get unlimited money from corporations and, and unions to political action committees who then can transfer the money to your own campaign committee. All we, Our system is at best Byzantine. It needs to be reformed. Uh, I think, unfortunately, a lot of people think New Hampshire is a Rom- Norman Rockwell painting. Uh, in terms of politics, but for the mo- and most people who come here want to do the right thing in the legislature, but when you have very little information that only comes from lobbyists, that's where it starts. 
And then you have, you know, taking out for lunch and, and events. And then all of a sudden you need to raise money because you're being challenged. And so you, you're going to be open to that. You and know, that's what happens. It's a corrupting influence. I, I, I'm sitting here smi smi smiling when, when, when Mark mentioned taking out to lunch. Because when I was in Congress, <laughs> there was a big reform effort. And the, the, as far as I could see, the results of the big reform effort to get money out of politics when I was in Congress was that uh, the members of Congress w were no longer allowed to be taken to lunch by lobbyists. That was a big deal. They can't, they can't pay for your lunch, number one. And number two was they were, the lobbyists and the associations, like the Association of Iowa Pork Producers, would put on an indoor barbecue uh, at uh, in the office buildings at uh, in Washington, and they'd take over one of these big conference rooms, and they'd bring in pork chops and pork ribs and corn on the cob, and and everywhere they'd plaster their signs. Uh, Thanks to the Iowa pork producers, and isn't that great? And and it was great because the staffers who uh, you know the, the staffers would just would would leave, form a gaggle. Everybody got free lunch, free dinner. You know, it was a, it was a great thing. So so the rule they made the rule to reform everything was you couldn't use. You could no longer sit down at any event so because they figured that if you sat down at an event, you were going to be served a meal. So you could no longer sit down at those kinds of events, and you couldn't use forks and knives. There would be no forks and knives. You could only eat with toothpicks. So whatever was served by the lobbyists had to be consumed off the end of a toothpick. Can you? So, I mean, there are a lot of people who, who got really adept at, at eating giant fried pork chops with toothpicks. You ought to see, you ought to see the scene. That has to be a mighty strong toothpick. But that is kind of a, an, a, 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 an, an, an analogy. It's, it's a symbol. Uh, think about a pork chop on a toothpick, folks, and the way Congress works. And that is about the best thing I can think of to talk about the dysfunction of our financial system. You get to, you get to eat the pork, the pork happens, but it looks like you're using a toothpick. Now, to your credit, you served, I believe, on the House Finance Committee. I did. I was on the Financial Services and Committee. when I was Director of Securities Regulation, a lot of the issues which brought down the banks, the money, the influence, the derivatives, et cetera, that really got me thinking when I left my position to uh, think about running for the United States Senate. And you recall, you already declared candidate, and I said, you know what, I'm thinking I'm going to run for the Senate. And I sat down and I read your voting record in the House Finance Committee, and I said, this guy is not for sale. He's r voting exactly the way he should be. And I said, you were the right candidate at the right time because you really <laughs> were at the forefront of Sarbanes-Oxley, a lot of the reforms that were necessary, and some of which are being rolled back now. Yeah. I mean, it's the cycle turns. Well, well, you know, I mean, and you talk about money in politics. When I was on the Financial Services Committee, and I probably have told this story, and I'll try to make it brief, uh, we were dealing, um, uh, when we were dealing with the uh, reform in the wake of the bank, you know, the financial failure, one of the issues we were dealing with was were credit issues. Who gets to, who gets to offer credit and under one, what terms and and one of the industries that was going to be regulated was the for-profit college industry. Um, I had been 
uh, down in Florida where representatives of the for-profit um, uh, industry and I had had a dinner during my campaign. And um, they, when the vote was coming up, uh, I got a call from their lobbyist asking if uh, we could meet. I said, okay. We went out to lunch, for which I paid. Uh, the lobbyist said to me, well, I'm sure you'll do the right thing on this vote. And I said to him, you're, you're absolutely right. You can count on me to do the right thing. <laughs> and uh, so the vote came up, and I voted to uh, regulate the credit practices of the for-profit universities, and I never saw another dime <laughs> from them. So doing the right thing had, had real consequences. I did not raise money from the financial services industries because they saw me as their enemy, and I didn't consider myself their enemy. I saw myself as coming into a system where there was a Byzantine system of regulation that needed to be straightened out and that some excesses and loopholes needed to be closed. And I thought I was taking a pretty fair look at uh, what was healthy for the overall economy and the citizens of New Hampshire and the country that I was supposed to represent. Um, You know, doing the right thing was why people, what was why people sent me. So, uh, we're talking with Mark Connolly on uh, Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live over the Internet, archived at nhtalkradio.com, brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community, designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour, celebrate life at the Birches, call 224-9111. We'll be back after a really short break to talk more with Mark Connolly, who has a fascinating perspective uh, on New Hampshire and its politics, having served in many important positions. We'll be right back. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live over the Internet and brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour. Celebrate life at the Birches. Call 224-9111. Well, I'm going to welcome back uh, our guest, uh, Mark Connolly, uh, from the seacoast, who has served very at various times in the state of New Hampshire as a state rep, uh, assistant, a deputy secretary of state, the securities commissioner. He now serves as an expert witness around the nation on securities fraud, uh, has an investment advisory business. He's a very smart guy with a really a good perspective on politics in New Hampshire. We've been talking about some of the challenges of money in politics in New Hampshire. And Mark, now, since we're off the record, uh, you served as Deputy Secretary of State. And uh, there seems to be a a dust-up going on (laughs) at the moment. A mild dust-up. That's the softball kind of question. A mild dust-up about the Secretary of State here in New Hampshire. It's it's not often an office that people pay any attention to because Bill Gardner has been there longer than most of us have been alive. So uh, what what's going on? What's Boy. your perspective? Well, listen, it, it, I'm uniquely informed in the sense, ill-informed, but informed in the sense that I actually was in the legislature when Bill ran for Secretary of State. And you I, must have been like 11 years I old. Was, I was 21. But here's the, here's the funniest thing. Bill was elected at the age of 27 or 28. 
the Constitution back then, it probably still says the same, you cannot be governor unless you're 30 or older. Well, the way the uh, transition worked, if the governor was out, the President, Senate, Speaker of the House, the Secretary of State became acting governor. So Bill Gardner actually was acting governor, but he wasn't constitutionally old enough to be governor. It was oh, well, we, we're not worried. <laughs> Constitution, we're not worried. So, so I, uh, I served, I, I, I uh, supported Bill. I saw the politics at that time uh, to thwart him by the Republicans. He was able to uh, win a, a race when, when the legislature was Republican-held. And, and this uh, was, when was this? This was 1976, 77. And when you say a race, do I understand that the Secretary of State's race is a little different than regular elections? Well, race is, is the, the wrong way to put it. In, in this case, uh, the Secretary of State is elected after the November election, after we have this, the Senate and House caucus and have their leadership, and then they meet in a joint session to elect the treasurer and the Secretary of State. And so, so the people of New Hampshire only get a say about Secretary of State through their elected representatives. That's correct. That's correct. It's not an election in the some usual states, sense. Some states have uh, publicly elected. Some states elect their attorney general. I mean, we're, we, we have an appointed attorney general, and the legislature elects this treasurer and Secretary of State. However, I will tell you that um, there has really been very little precedent of this kind of campaign that's going on now by uh, two, two other candidates besides Secretary of State. So to complete my story on this, to answer your question, I served Assistant Secretary of State for four years where I headed up the corporation division, went to gr- graduate school, came back many years later, served Deputy Secretary of State, and then became Director of Securities Regulation. So I've watched this office over four decades, and I'll tell you that a couple of things. Bill has been successful in keeping the New Hampshire primary. He has had no, there's been no, no even implicit uh, p- political overtures to the office. He's been well respected nationally. I think he's the longest serving Secretary of State in uh, the country. In the country. Now, yep. Colin, Colin Van Austin has raised some issues that I think are valid, like gerrymandering, uh, you know, his perspective on election law, et cetera. And the, only, the thing bothers me, not so much raising the issues, it's doing in the context of doing this very aggressive fundraising. And I don't think th- that's the right way to go. I think that uh, the system should be such that the legislature meets and then they listen to the issues and make up their own uh, decision. I think uh, there always is room for debate. There's always room for discussion. Uh, but I think Bill's done a good job. And uh, um, I, I think there are issues he's going to have to address. But, but the more important thing is the issues that Colin is raising now, is, and, and Bill has raised too, is uniquely p- p- policy, and that's the legislature. So if we want to change in 2020 gerrymandering, which is whoever, whichever political party is in power, they set the boundaries of the state Senate and the, state, and, and the House of Representatives, and both parties in the past, particularly Republicans, because they've usually run the legislature, have made it such that if you look at the state Senate the way it is now, more people have voted for Democratic candidates in the last, let's say, three elections or four since, my math right, three since 2010. But Republicans have maintained total control of the Senate. I think that's wrong. And having an impartial panel decide the districts of the state where it fully reflects the, the feelings of the people is the right thing to do. But the point is a lot of these issues need to be raised in the context of the legislature. And the Secretary of State really is what it says, secretary to the state, and is administering securities, archives, and those sort of issues. And I, and I think the one thing, whatever happens here in this race, or any, any race, if that's the word you use, we need to make sure that the Secretary of State is not 
perceived in any way as a partisan position. Otherwise, it will it really hurt the integrity of the office. You know, and, and Bill successfully had, Bill Gardner has successfully threaded that needle for a long, long time. A number of things happened, however, which really um, uh, be- caught the public's attention and I think uh, uh, motivated um, some opposition for the first time uh, in at least my recent memory. And those included uh, uh, this Bill Gardner's joining uh, the Trump panel, the Trump Commission on Voter Fraud, which many saw as giving it credibility, um, giving credibility to something which nobody, uh, um, well, which at least from a partisan standpoint, Democrats and and numerous others uh, said there is no massive voter fraud issue in New Hampshire. If Bill, if you join this panel, you're giving credibility to, to a, to a, to a, to a show commission that, that is purely partisan and political, and you're, uh, whether you're, as a Democrat, giving it credibility. That really, for Democrats, I think, was, especially in the wake of the uh, extraordinary presidential election, was a real eye-opener. And the Secretary of State's position on the Republican effort to um, uh, SB3 to deal with uh, college students and their voting and residence and domicile and the positions he has taken there also caused a lot of agita for Democrats. So all of a sudden, an, uh, an office in which he had successfully protected the New Hampshire primary for years and years and in which he had been seen as essentially a nonpartisan figure uh, became a partisan issue. And, uh, you know, hopefully, whatever the result of this election is, that we will return to a secretary of state um, which is seen as nonpartisan, which is in fact nonpartisan, and which leaves policy to the legislature and deals with those issues that the secretary of state um, should be dealing with, which are really more ministerial than than wading into uh, policy. Well, let me say this. I have not spoken to Bill about this issue. Uh, in fact, when I was at the, in the office, I was involved in other areas besides election laws. But I, I will say, knowing Bill, uh, I'll mention two things. First of all, he has not ever said, and I've read his public positions on this, that we have voter fraud, rampant voter fraud. He, In fact, he has said there isn't. And I think the, the, Trump, the, the Trump administration, President Trump himself, has said that there's voter, voting fraud in New Hampshire. He said that people bust up here. It's been shown to be wrong. I don't, I don't believe that's Bill's position. And knowing him the way I do, I have a feeling that he got involved in that commission because he wanted to make sure there was input besides the kind of, the, the kind of material that the, the president was putting out. Now, was he advised in retrospect to have done that? I wouldn't have advised him to do that, but I think Bill, having known him for all the years I have, he he tries to do the right thing. His intention's always right, and I don't think Bill has politicized this office in any way. Somehow in politics, no good deed goes unpunished. Goes unpunished. I I've, know that feeling. I, you know it. I found it out when I ran for the U.S. Senate in 2010. I'd voted for health care for Americans. I wanted to make it more accessible, more affordable. <laughs> I wanted to help start on the fix for health care. Most people at the time, just they I was trashed left and right of course I lost my race 
um, to Kelly Ayotte at the time. So no good deed goes unpunished in politics. We've been talking to Mark Connolly, a man who knows about no good deed goes unpublished <laughs> in politics, about the some of the issues facing uh, New Hampshire. We're going to have Mark back to talk again about the state and its challenges because he's smart and has been around. It's off the record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the Internet and brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, and other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour, call 224-9111, and celebrate life at the Birches. Folks, we'll be back in just a moment to wrap up this week's edition of Off the Record with Paul Hodes. Don't go away. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live over the Internet and brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour, celebrate life at the Birches, call 224-9111. Well, freshly back from Bella Italia, Bella Italia, I uh, went on a little bit of ramp about rant about Benito Trumpolini and his his program of separating children from families because face it folks it was a Trump program to separate kids from their families inhumane obscene un-American uh, and he's now trying to pitch his executive order as something that's changed it uh, he's just creating additional havoc and we had a great discussion with Mark Connolly who has served the state of New Hampshire as a state rep as deputy secretary of state uh, who's been a candidate for governor, securities commissioner, um, was thinking of running for the U.S. Senate, but didn't run against me for some bizarre reason. Because you were the better guy. Yeah, well, he would have. <laughs> maybe he would have won because um, he didn't have that. my voting record as a congressman. <laughs> but we're really happy that he joined us. We appreciate our great sponsor, the Birches at Concord. Thanks, everybody, for listening. You can binge listen at nhtalkradio.com. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM signing off. We'll be back next week with more Off the Record with Paul Hodes. Know what today is? Today is your day to explore all that New Hampshire has to offer. ARP is working to make this great state an even better place to live, work, and play for people of all ages. So get involved in one of their many volunteer opportunities. Avoid scams by shredding your private documents at a shred event and make your voice heard through legislative advocacy. These are just a few ways you can take on today and every day here in the Granite State. Learn more at aarp.org nh. Again, that's aarp.org nh.